Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living today. With Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. To ask questions or join in the discussion, email us at the Yoga Hour at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, here's your host, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning, and welcome to the Yoga Hour, a time to open our hearts and minds to the infinite. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien while she's away. Today I'll be sharing some insights and time-tested practices from the ancient system of Kriya Yoga. Yoga is a Sanskrit word that many, maybe most people are familiar with today, but uh, they usually are thinking of it in terms of exercise. Yoga actually means oneness, union, or unity, the bringing together of our attention and awareness with our essential spiritual nature to be restored to our original wholeness. Kriya Yoga philosophy uh, includes practices for spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. As a medical doctor and longtime practitioner of Kriya Yoga, I have found it to be a comprehensive system for enhanced well-being on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. Today our topic is good sense, good science, and good practices for health and well-being. And our guest is Diana Lurie, Ph.D., Dr. Lurie is a professor of neuropharmacology at the University of Montana, where she directs a research laboratory focusing on central nervous system injury and the response of the nervous system to natural products, including Ayurvedic herbs. Dr. Lurie maintains active collaborations with other research groups at the University of Washington, the University of Kansas Medical Center, and Layla Pharma in uh, Vijayawada, India. Dr. Lurie is an Ayurvedic practitioner and teaches neuroscience, anatomy and physiology, and courses in Ayurveda. She is the editor-in-chief of the Ayurveda Journal of Health, and her website is health.umt.edu slash biomed slash people. Welcome, Diana Lurie. I'm delighted that you could join us today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we enter into our dialogue about the science behind Ayurveda, let's begin with a moment of meditation. Om. In this moment, this yoga moment, Let's begin by bringing our attention to our breath. Our breath is a wonderful tool to begin to turn our focus within. So just become aware of your breath, noticing its natural flow. Don't try and change it, just notice. 
as you inhale and exhale. Warm air flowing in, sorry, cool air entering the nostrils and warm air flowing out. In this moment, we let our mind drop down into our heart and just be present now. One reality called by many names is the support and substance of all that is. Right where we are, right now, this divine essence is present as you, as me, as everyone. Within us, between us, and all around us. Just by being present now and noticing, we can rest in this essence of our being, We notice thoughts and feelings as they arise and as they pass away. We become aware of our essential nature beyond words and thoughts, beyond all change, beyond thought and sensation. Pure existence being We feel the peace that emanates from the essence of our being. We allow it to pervade the mental field, the emotional nature, the physical body, and we allow ourselves to rest in our inner peaceful depths. We abide in this peace and let it overflow as blessing for all beings everywhere. So Diana Lurie, once again, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Thank you. I thought we'd start with a question about, given your background, that you have a PhD in neuroscience, how did you get interested in Ayurveda? Well, that's a really good question. I get that a lot. And it's kind of an interesting story. So when I was a graduate student in the 80s, I worked on spinal cord regeneration. And there was a lot of excitement in the field because we felt that we would be able to solve spinal cord injury and spinal cord lesions um, very soon, within maybe five or ten years. Wow. But, yeah. So, but here we are in 2015, and we still can't do that. And yeah. we know a lot more about the biology of, of the spinal cord, but we can't really fix it. And so about eight years ago, I was thinking about this and thought, well, maybe we're missing some major concepts in health and physiology by our Western perspective. And maybe we should look at different systems of medicine and see how they look at, at the body. And Ayurveda appealed to me because it's based on doshas. So everything is based on an individual's biology and psychology. So mm-hmm. it's really based in genetics. So as a scientist, um, that really appealed to me. And so I uh, enrolled in a, in a program, an Ayurvedic practitioner program with Kerala Ayurveda, and spent some time in India. And what I got out of my training was two real concepts of that Ayurveda considers very important. One is the concept of digestion, and we'll talk about some of that today, and the concept of inflammation and how many of the Ayurvedic therapies are actually designed to reduce inflammation and how a good digestion and elimination is really the key to health. Mm. 
Uh, such a great story. Um, the whole uh, link with inflammation has been so interesting to me. I uh, recertify in internal medicine about every 10 years, and my last recertification was about two years ago. And so I studied, you know, basically did a review of all of internal medicine in preparation for that. Um, And one of the things that was most notable to me is the prominent role of inflammation as our understanding of so many disease processes has progressed. Inflammation is this key. Absolutely. And what I find really fascinating is that diseases that we consider to be psychological diseases like depression and anxiety and schizophrenia are being linked to inflammation as well. So it's not just our physical body, but sort of our emotional well-being that also revolves around inflammation. Mm. So interesting. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's been striking to me as I've studied uh, things, you know, like Ayurveda, which this is a characteristic it shares actually with other, you know, traditional medicine systems like, uh, you know, traditional Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. These alternative therapies really look at each individual as being unique. And then therapies are customized to the individual rather than being the same for all. Um, But this approach, this individualized approach, is a bit of a challenge when doing biomedical research because in general what you do in a research study, as you know, is you kind of create one, you know, one treatment, you know, that you apply to all and then you see if that treatment, you know, has an effect in the group. So um, what have you found as a, as a researcher, you know, in trying to look at things like Ayurveda? Uh, what effect does this individualized approach really have on research uh, about Ayurvedic treatments? Yeah, it has a huge effect. And it's really interesting because it's sort of changing the, the field, looking at traditional systems of medicine and, and how they work or don't work, is really beginning to revolutionize how we look at what we consider to be clinical trials in biomedical research. So as you know, the concept, the gold standard for research is a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. So a trial where the researcher doesn't know which group is receiving the treatment and they're getting also a placebo control that isn't, for example, the drug. And that doesn't work at all for Ayurveda or for Chinese medicine or for any of these traditional systems of medicine. So the the scientific community is actually beginning to discuss different ways of doing these kinds of research, like um, retrospective studies, looking back at how people do after treatments. Mm -hmm. And this is really relevant for biomedical research because we're also beginning to look at a person's genetics when we're looking at treatment options for somebody. And Mm -hmm. so, it's it's very it's very much the same concept as Ayurveda. So isn't that so? Genetic. Isn't that yes? Isn't that so interesting? Mm-hmm. This idea of personalized medicine is really right. entering into medicine from the scientific perspective of the different genetics. Exactly, and so it's not just that we have to redo the way we look at traditional systems of medicine. We really need to rethink how we look at studies that involve this personalized medicine. Um, And one of the things that we desperately need in Ayurveda research is a universal test for dosha for the physiology and psychology because everybody's using a different type of test and there's no, you know, there's no way to compare study to study really when you're putting people into groups based on different types of tests. So you have already mentioned that one of the key principles in Ayurveda is that a good health really begins with a healthy gastrointestinal symptom. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, healthy gastrointestinal system. Right. So, and the and the key concept of Agni in Ayurveda. So, what is Agni, and what is its importance in our health? Well, Agni is a very, as you say, a very important concept in Ayurveda, and it's basically the fire element, but we think of it as governing transformation. So things like digestion, absorption, assimilating food, uh, transformation of food and sensations into energy, all of that is considered to be Agni. And Agni is considered to be the main source of life. And there's a saying in Ayurveda that a person is as old as their Agni. So when their metabolic fire is robust, a person can live a long and healthy life. But when Agni slows down, a person's health um, deteriorates. And so we think of Agni as residing in Pitta, which is the dosha of metabolism, and it's the heating energy. 
Right. And so when we have problems with Agni, then we have problems with health. So, for example, there's a type of Agni called Tiksha or sharp Agni. And, then, and that is when you're sort of over-digesting food. So you get things like hyperacidity, gastritis, etc. Um, and many of these pitta-type disorders have their origin in this sort of overactive Agni. Right. So the other, you know, paired concept with Agni, of right. course, is, is Ama. Uh, right. So what is Ama and how is that important in our health? Ama is considered to be food that you can't digest properly. So another problem Agni can have is that it's too weak and that it can't digest the food properly. And in Ayurveda, this turns into sort of this concept of a sticky substance called ama that spreads throughout the body and it's considered to be the cause the root cause of most diseases in ayurveda mm-hmm. and sort of a symptom of a lot of ama would be the tongue would get a very thick coating you may have generalized body ache and stiffness and the goal of ayurveda is really to remove ama and then restore health mm-hmm. So um, I love the the uh, descriptions that you've given because um, sometimes I've heard, uh, for example, Agni kind of um, referred to as just digestion. But when you when you speak about it, and also you speak about ama, it's clear these are way more than digestion, you know, and just you know to- uh, toxic sludge in the intestinal tract. Mm-hmm. They really are whole body, whole being c- concepts. Absolutely. Um, which I think is, is uh, it, it's a much richer view of them. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, Western medicine so far, but the other interesting thing that's happening in Western medicine is really, um, you know, the recognition of the role of digestion in health and particularly the whole focus on the microbacteria that are in our uh, intestines, in our gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've recently become a huge topic of medical research. Lots of interesting studies coming out about the importance of the microbiome. So right. what, are, what are our gut microbacteria and where do they come from? <laughs> so our gut microbacteria, we have these microbacteria that are actually all on our body. We have some in the gut. We have in our skin, in our eyebrows. And in fact... Um, the number of cells, we've got millions and millions, 10 to the 14 cells that are part of the human microbiome. So these are bacteria that live in our system, and they actually outnumber the human cells in our body by a factor of 10. And they also have 100 times the number of genes compared to the human genome. So human beings, you could actually think of as being a vessel for our microbiome. Yeah, um, it's wild. Yeah. yeah. But our gut microbacteria live in our GI system, and they can change according to what you eat, where you live, and your genetics. And our gut is initially colonized by these bacteria um, at birth, and depending on the birth delivery mode, you can have different gut microbacteria. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a baby is vaginally born, the gut is colonized by fecal and vaginal bacteria of the mother. If they're born by cesarean section, they're exposed to the bacterial environment that's more related to human skin and mm-hmm. the hospital environment. Mm-hmm. And so there are some studies that show that infants that are delivered by cesarean section are a little more likely to suffer from allergies, asthma, GI function, dysfunction, obesity, diabetes, sort of later in life. So that whole field is really quite interesting. It is. It's uh, fascinating. And I can't believe it, but we've already come to the first break. You're You're listening to the Yoga Hour with guest Diana Lurie, PhD, professor of neuropharmacology at the University of Montana, also an Ayurvedic practitioner and editor-in-chief of the Ayurveda Journal of Health. And her website is health.umt.edu slash biomed slash people. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for Yogacharya O'Brien. When we come back from the break, we'll explore, explore more about the science behind Ayurvedic recommendations. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. 
Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. Ever notice how the funniest things happen when we stop taking ourselves too seriously and step out boldly? Listen to Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed as these unlikely saints administer a refreshing dose of laughter and love that will inspire you to step out boldly and experience the funniest things. Join the discussion with Daryl and Ed live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Time on Funniest Thing, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Spirit of Recovery is the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth. Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., interviews down-to-earth guests who share with you how they keep going and growing in recovery. Spirit of Recovery is the place to get practical tips and join in lively discussions on topics that matter to recovering people. This program welcomes everyone who wants to know more about recovery. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time on Spirit of Recovery, where we talk about what keeps you growing. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. We now return to the Yoga Hour. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for the Yoga Hour's regular host, Yogacharya O'Brien. I'm joined today by Diana Lurie, Ph.D., who's a professor of neuropharmacology at the University of Montana, as well as an Ayurvedic practitioner. In this section, we will continue discussing the science behind Ayurvedic recommendations. So, so Diana, one of the attractive things about Ayurveda for many people is the focus on diet and lifestyle factors that really are under our control. Um, but some of the Ayurvedic advice about diet is puzzling to Westerners, and, and we wonder if it's folklore or if it has any basis in modern uh, science and modern treatment. Um, so let's look at that uh, science. So Ayurveda recommends that we avoid ice-cold beverages since cold beverages are said to inhibit Agni, which as we've just been describing, our digestive firearm metabolism uh, is a, such an important thing for our health. So is there any scientific evidence that cold temperatures inhibit digestion? You know, actually there is, and they're quite interesting studies. They certainly weren't designed to test these Ayurvedic principles, and a lot of them are sort of older studies. But there are groups that look to see how warm foods and drinks and cold foods and drinks affect digestion. And in fact, there was a really interesting study done in the 80s where people um, had a temperature sensor introduced through the nose down into the stomach, and they actually monitored the intragastric temperature. And so they had these um, subjects, they did, they did this study in six men, um, and they looked at orange juice at different temperatures, cold temperatures, room temperature, and warm temperature. And what they found was that the temperature in your um, stomach drops after you ingest both warm and cold juice, but the recovery back to normal is slower with cold drinks as compared to warm. And so the gastric temperature drops with cold drinks, and the food exits the stomach a little bit more slowly when you have cold drinks. They also found that both cold and warm temperatures affect how your gut um, how your gut moves to move temperature to move food through the gut. So it affects actually digestion, but the cold liquid showed the greater inhibition. So there actually is some um, research that shows that if you 
drink ice-cold beverages, you lower the temperature in your stomach, the food in your stomach empties more slowly into your intestines, and then that food passes through your intestines more slowly. Mm. It's very interesting work. Yes, and uh, and kind of um, intuitively would make sense to me. Uh, the thing that's been very interesting to me as someone who's now you know trying to be aware of of how how many cold beverages I drink is is just how routine it is you know in mm-hmm. our society to serve things ice cold. And in a restaurant, it's actually very hard to get you know for example you know just water without ice. <laughs> it's really exactly, and the first thing they plop down in front of you when you sit down at a table is this gigantic glass of ice cold water. <laughs> Which Indeed. is terrible for your digestion. <laughs> yeah. So then turning to um, how we cook food. So what is the science behind microwave foods? Since Ayurveda recommends that we avoid microwaved foods. Are microwave foods less nutritious than foods cooked with conventional heat? Well, that's a really interesting question, and people have looked at that. Um, and what we have to remember is that microwaves are... Waves that are on, they're natural waves that are part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So things like radio waves, microwaves, visible light, UV light, they're all part of the same electromagnetic spectrum. And Ayurveda recommends that we don't microwave food because it's thought to damage um, prana. And so what happens when you use a microwave is that it heats the food a little bit differently than when you heat food on on a stove or in an oven, for example. So in an oven, you heat the outside of the food first, and then the inside slowly warms up to the outside temperatures. The opposite happens when you microwave food. It heats food from the inside out. So the center of the food gets hot first, and then the outside catches up. And the heating is not uniform. And so the studies that have looked at how microwaves affect food have found that one of the dangers of microwaves is really because of this uneven heating. So one part of your food might be really hot and the other might not be. Mm-hmm. And so this could be a problem if, you're tr- if there are microbes in food that, you're, you know, that you kill with cooking. You may not kill them or kill particular mm-hmm. bacteria using microwaves. But the general thought in the scientific community is that microwaves don't actually change the basic chemical structure of food. So it's not changing the chemistry of food, but it does alter the texture of food. So like breads get very um, tough when you microwave them because the starch in them starts to boil. You get these localized areas of boiling. The other thing is that microwaves are actually used in industry to dry foods, such as rice. And there are a couple of studies that have looked at the effect of microwaves on drying food or drying rice. And one study um, looked at rice that had been microwaved and then vacuum-packed and then stored for up to 180 days. And what they found was that microwaves reduce the protein content of rice and some of the free fatty acids. But this increased the stickiness of rice, so it made it more sensory appealing. And it's interesting because Ayurveda says you should store rice for a year before you use it. So there are some small changes in, for example, in rice, in the fat content and protein and sugar, but how this all relates to prana, the concept of prana or life force in Ayurveda, we don't really know. All that we know scientifically is that from a chemical point of view, it's not really changing the structure of food, but mm-hmm. it's changing how that food heats in, right. you know, compared to an oven. Yeah. Yeah, I I uh, love this concept of prana, you know, that is in uh Ayurveda, which is, you know, the same concept has a lot of different words in different systems like in traditional Chinese medicine it's chi. When I think about the prana that we get from food, it's really like the vitality. Exactly. Um, and and we don't have a vitality meter at the moment. No, we don't. <laughs> I wish we did, but exactly. we don't. 
<laughs> so Ayurveda recommends that we eat lots of lightly cooked vegetables. Um, and, of course, eating lots of vegetables is also recommended in Western dietary advice. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed when I heard your presentation on this subject at the um, at the Ayurvedic conference earlier this year, uh, you, you reviewed the evidence that chopping vegetables actually makes them healthier. And, mm-hmm. and I, I love this. So can you review the science behind this for our listeners? Sure. Yeah, when I was doing research on this, I, when I found that, I was also really fascinated by it. Um, so the concept of why we eat fruits and vegetables is they're good for you. And one of the reasons why they're so good for you is they have a lot of antioxidants in them. And so they're considered to be functional foods. They also have things like um, vitamin C and all kinds of, of constituents that are very helpful for health. And there is some research that shows, as you say, that if you chop vegetables, they're more healthy. And the reason is, I'll use the example of um, broccoli. There are compounds in broccoli that you have a one protein called a glycosinolate, and when it comes into contact with an enzyme called myrosinase, it produces a new compound called isothiocyanates. And the original compound, the glucosinolates, are stored in one part of the broccoli, and the enzyme is stored in a different part. And when you chop the vegetable, these two compounds come to, together and make isothiocyanates. And isothiocyanates are thought to be very protective against cancers, especially colon cancer, lung cancer, and bladder cancer. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting how nature has designed this system that just chopping, just chopping the vegetables is good because it gets these enzymes working. Mm-hmm. So um, there's lots of different choices we have when cooking our, our vegetables. Um, we can, you know, boil them, um, mm-hmm. fry them, bake them, pressure cook, uh, pressure cook them. So um, what is the best cooking method for vegetables? Yeah, that, I get that question a lot. And it, honestly, the liter- literature on this is very confusing and contradictory. And there have been quite a few studies that have looked at, for example, the effects of boiling, microwave cooking, steaming on various vegetables. And what, what overall we found is that cooking doesn't, in general, negatively affect the antioxidant content of vegetables. And in fact, moderate heat actually increases these good antioxidants mm-hmm. in um, vegetables like peppers and broccoli and spinach. Um, Actually, boiling vegetables has been shown to, by another study, to produce the greatest decrease in these antioxidants. The greatest decrease. Yeah, decrease. And um, some studies have found that microwaving and baking retain the most antioxidant activity. And so it really depends on the vegetable that you're looking at. Microwaving and grilling on a griddle produces the lowest loss of these good antioxidants. Hmm. Frying is kind of intermediate. You get intermediate loss. And pressure cooking and boiling produce the greatest losses. Mm-hmm. Of the antioxidants. And, yeah, the antioxidants. And so in general, the literature sh- sort of shows that deep frying and boiling should be avoided. And Ayurveda recommends that you chop your vegetables and then you lightly cook them, either lightly steam them or lightly saute them. And that mm-hmm. seems to produce the, to retain the most uh, of these good antioxidants. So let's turn our attention to processed foods, which unfortunately for many people, uh, particularly in the United States, form a really huge percentage of our diets. And Ayurveda recommends that we avoid processed foods. So what is the role of processed foods in our diets today? That's an excellent question. And Ayurveda is completely spot on on this. So phosphates are actually one of the most common additives to foods. So you know, colas, soft drinks, canned fish, baked items, processed meats, all have phosphates in them. And they don't have to be listed on the labels. And so you, so they can add as much as one gram of phosphate a day to our diet, and we don't even know about it. Huh. Um, about 
half of the phosphates that we eat are ingested and absorbed by our GI system. And they can negatively affect the cardiovascular system. They can negatively affect renal function, even in healthy people. So people like with chronic renal disease are usually on a phosphate-restricted diet. Um, it's used as a, as a preservative. They're in fast foods and ready-to-eat meals. And unfortunately, these ultra-processed foods like cakes, pastries, breakfast cereals, hamburgers, don't have very much nutritional uh, value to them. And the top ten foods in the U.S., include beer, cheese, and French fries, and they contribute almost 75% of our total energy intake. So Mm -hmm. most people in the U.S. are eating most of their calories from processed foods. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at least a quarter of all our energy intake comes from foods that are micro that are processed and have a lot of sugar and fat in them. Mm -hmm. And this is a trend that's increasing worldwide. And in fact, the worldwide consumption of of sugar has tripled over the last 50 years. So most people are consuming an average of more than 500 calories a day from added sugar. So we really do need to avoid these processed foods. But it's also a social issue because these ultra-processed foods are very cheap and there's easy access. And so even during the economic downturn in this country, the fast food sales remain very strong. And, in fact, in the U.S., McDonald's makes sure that there's a restaurant within a three- to four-minute car ride for the average American. Mm. And in the U.S., there are almost one-and-a-half times more fast food restaurants that are located in mostly low-income and African-American neighborhoods as compared to predominantly white neighborhoods. And that's a really terrible social issue that we have to deal with. And interestingly, the situation is reversed in India where fast food is more readily available to the richer communities compared to the rural poor. So, so we're talking are, not... Hmm? Go ahead. I was just, just going to say, so there are uh, associations of eating fast foods with you know some health issues, including obesity. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, are there other health issues associated with eating uh, proce- um, processed foods? Well, the processed foods tend to have a lot of sugar. So we discussed the phosphates damaging our cardiovascular system and our renal system. And most of these, fast, these processed foods have a lot of sugar in them. And as you know, sugar can induce a wide range of diseases associated with um, metabolic syndrome. Mm-hmm. And some people even think of sugar as having the potential for abuse, looking at it almost as, you know, a drug uh, that is very damaging to the physiology, to our physiology. The fa- so, and, so, go ahead. And the fact that we're getting a quarter of all of our energy, at least a quarter of all our energy from these types of foods is very disturbing. Right. So other than, you know, I mean, obviously avoiding avoiding uh, processed foods, which when you think about the vitality of foods, I love to think mm-hmm. about that. And you look at, mm-hmm. you know, say, a, you know, something that um, is a, a fresh, like a vegetable or a piece of fruit, and look at something that has an equal amount of calories that's, a, mm-hmm. you know, processed foods, and you just think, which of these looks more vital? Which of mm-hmm. these has more vitality? I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody would choose, you know, oh, yeah, the, you know, the Twinkies or the Ho-Hos, those right. are more... Does have more vitality, um, right. but there's so much uh, information about food, and it's confusing for people. So, is there an easy guideline for making healthy food choices today? You know, I actually find this a very difficult question to answer, and I will answer it sort of from my Ayurvedic background and my scientific background. What I tend to do is I tend to eat fresh foods that are local and mm-hmm. organic where possible. Um, I live in Montana, so in the winter that's not always possible, but in the summer it is. And, you know, for me the question of is it better to eat a local vegetable that maybe wasn't organically grown compared to an organic vegetable imported from South America, you know, I don't know. I think we have to be conscious about what we eat. I think we have to try and eat locally. But, again, I think it's better to eat frozen vegetables than no vegetable at all. I think it's better to eat fresh microwave vegetables than frozen vegetables. 
So I think that we all have to make decisions based on what is really available to us in our lifestyle. I think we have to be conscious of it. I think that we have to make an effort to make good choices and to try and get fast food sort of out of our diet and this ultra-processed food. And otherwise, I think, you know, we all do the best that we can because you don't want to add stress to yourself. If you've been working a 12-hour day and you come home and you're like, oh, I can't microwave my vegetables, I'm exhausted, I've got to do this, you know, that's worse for your system. Yeah. That stress is worse than than actually eating a microwave vegetable. Oh, indeed. And once again, we're at the time for our break. You're listening to The Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for regular host, Yogacharya O'Brien. Today's guest is Diana Lurie, Ph.D., Professor of Neuropharmacology at the University of Montana and also an Ayurvedic practitioner and editor-in-chief of the Ayurveda Journal of Health. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. Please stay with us. We'll be right back to explore the science of when and how we eat. What is the key to happiness? Would you like to find the fountain of youth? How about all the money and love that you could handle? Well, my friends, it is there for you. You just need to strip off the false beliefs that keep your divine inheritance from being attracted into your life. You need to be real. Be vulnerable. Be naked. What are you waiting for? Let's get naked. This transformational program with Reverend Heidi Alfrey is an invitation to explore and remove the blocks that keep you from emotional freedom. Listen to Heidi and her revealing guests as they embrace the power of spiritual nakedness as a guaranteed way to live an authentic and transparent life. Expose yourself to your greatness on Mondays at 3 p.m. Central Time. Let's get naked. No dress code required. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You gotta get rid of your butt. It's bigger than it would appear. It hinders your forward movement when you keep bringing up the rear. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. If you have a question... Please submit it via email at the Yoga Hour at UnityOnlineRadio.org and we will respond. Now, back to the Yoga Hour. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for the Yoga Hour's regular host, Yogacharya O'Brien. My guest today is Diana Lurie, PhD, Ayurvedic practitioner, as well as professor of neuropharmacology at the University of Montana. In this segment, we're going to turn our attention to the science of when and how we eat. Um, so in terms of when we eat, Diana, Ayurveda recommends that the largest meal of the day be eaten at noon. Um, so what impact does meal timing have on maintaining a healthy body weight or on our weight gain or potentially even obesity? Well, Laurel, this is actually a fascinating question, and um, there are a number of studies that have come out in the last five years or so looking at the timing of food intake. I'll give you an example of a couple of those studies. So one study looked at the association of energy intake or food intake throughout the day with the risk of obesity. In people, and so what what they were asked to do, these participants reported the timing of food intake, so they reported when they ate food rather than defining whether they were eating a meal or a snack or or they just said when they were eating. 
And the study also looked at the total energy intake um, using a physiological test to compare and confirm sort of the self-reported food intake. And this was done in 239 people, and the majority of these people reported that they did not engage in more than 150 minutes of exercise a week. So they were a fairly sedentary population. Mm-hmm. And what the study found was that people who consumed more than 33% of their calories at midday were less likely to be overweight or obese, mm-hmm. and people that consumed more than 33% of their calories at night were twice as likely to be overweight or obese. And what was really interesting about this study is it didn't matter what type of food was consumed. What mattered was the time of day that the majority of the calories were eaten. So a second study looked at the timing of early lunch eaters versus late lunch eaters in Spain. And so this this study looked at 420 people that were following a weight loss program based mm-hmm. on the Mediterranean diet and some behavioral and techniques. And what they found was that people that ate lunch after 3 p.m. lost significantly less weight than people that ate lunch before 3 p.m. So it's really interesting because what it's showing is that it's not necessarily what you're eating, it's when are you consuming most of your calories? Mm-hmm. And so Ayurveda says, well, eat your biggest meal at noon. So that means, you know, the majority of your calories for the day are being consumed, you know, before early afternoon. And then at night, Ayurveda recommends that you just have a really light dinner. Mm-hmm. And the science that's done in people, now these aren't animal studies, these are people studies, show that this is really true. It's very interesting. It is. And we've also touched on the microbiome. And uh, does the timing of meals affect the microbiome in any way? Absolutely. There are studies now that are beginning to um, show that what you're eating and how you're eating, the feeding patterns when you're eating, affect the gut bacteria. And so obese people and mice have gut macrobacteria that are really different from people that are not overweight. And so a quick change in diet can actually alter the composition of the gut in both humans and, and mice. We don't really understand how changes in the gut microbiome affect metabolism But we do know that food intake really makes a big difference. So, for example, there was a study looking at mice. And mice, if they have unlimited access to their normal food, they eat most mostly at night when they're active, and they eat less during the day when they're inactive. And so they have these gut bacteria that cycle along with the day-night cycle. So if but if mice have unlimited access to a really high fat diet, they eat all the time. They eat during the day, they eat during the night, they become obese, they have high cholesterol, and their gut bacteria don't cycle either. But interestingly, when mice were fed a high fat diet, but they were only allowed to eat at night, which is when normally they should be eating, they're not obese. They don't get obese and they don't show these other metabolic disorders like high cholesterol. So even though they're eating this high-fat diet, if you restrict when they're allowed to eat it, they, they don't become obese. And the gut bacteria start cycling a little bit more normally compared to mice that, have, that are eating sort of a normal diet. Right, and such an um, interesting thing. I mean, who would think if it's the same number of calories during a day that mm-hmm. eating, you know, the timing of eating and having them most, uh, most of them come, at, you know, at, in uh, the midday meal would make such a huge difference and uh, something that anyone who's interested in trying to uh, lose weight really mm-hmm. should pay attention to then, you know, what is the timing of their meals. Right, so. exactly. And there are also some, there's some interesting work coming out that's showing that there's a particular species of gut bacteria called lactobacillus. And there's a relationship between this species of gut bacteria and obesity. So if you have a decrease in these lactobacillus, that protects against metabolic disorders like high cholesterol that are associated with obesity. 
Um, and this species cycles normally in the mice that are just eating normal chow at night and mm -hmm. the mice that are eating the high-fat diet at night. But in the mice that eat this high-fat diet all the time, the lactobacillus doesn't cycle and it's elevated. So there's this and association. Right, right, interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, we've already kind of touched on this idea of prana, or vitality, or life energy. Um, and Ayurveda views food, of course, as being an important source of the life energy, but you know, prana also comes from the air we breathe and other mm -hmm. things like being in nature. Um, and as we've already mentioned, unfortunately, there's no prana meter yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's no specific, uh, scientific way to measure prana. Um, so we can't really study things like uh, looking at the effects of cooking methods on pranic content. Right. Is there any, any research that you know of that's really looking at this kind of question, uh, trying to, you know, measure, you know, prana or vitality? You know, there isn't. There isn't. Um, not that I'm aware of, because um, it's a concept, at least in Ayurveda, that's fairly specific to Ayurveda. And Ayurveda is just really beginning to gain a hold in the biomedical community in the West. And the right. question is, you know, how would you study prana from a scientific perspective? Because you'd have to look at how does prana affect the individual, you know, if we don't have a prana meter. And so maybe one of the things we could start looking at is immune function, uh, populations of gut bacteria. It's a really interesting concept. And, and I, I teach neuroscience to, to pharmacy students, actually. And one of the things that I say is that our reality is defined by what our senses can translate from the outside world, what we can see, mm -hmm. what we can hear. You know, we don't see all the wavelengths. We don't hear all the sound waves. And then those, that, those waves, like microwaves, that we can't experience, we build a machine so that we can, we can experience them. Right. So our reality is determined by what we sense or the machines we can build. And so... That's sort of the concept of prana. You know, what is prana? Can we ever measure it? Can we ever build something that can measure it? Mm -hmm. How would we determine the effect of prana on our own physiology? So those are very kind of deep questions because prana is at the very heart of, of Ayurveda. Mm -hmm. You know, a concept like Agni, we can translate a little bit eas more easily into a biomedical perspective. Mm -hmm. But but prana is a very um, based in biophysics, not biochemistry, right. and so our medicine is based in biochemistry at this point. So I think. So, it's, I was just going to say. So unfortunately, we we only have about a minute left. So if you were going to give, like, distill your, you know, from what you know about Ayurveda and about science, uh, distill your recommendations uh, for people. Um, into just a, you know, like a pithy little, <laughs> pithy little summary. So uh -huh. what would you, what would you, what would you recommend that our listeners take away, you know, from this conversation today? I would recommend that you try and eat local foods and cut down on processed foods, but don't beat yourself up if you go get a hamburger from McDonald's or whatever, if you're not a vegetarian. I would try and eat the majority of your calories before mid-afternoon. And I would try and engage in one practice a day, whether it's a meditation, whether it's listening to music, whether it's going to a yoga class, that lowers stress, that lowers your sort of fight or flight response. Mm. So those would be the three, three things that I think are fairly easy to do and can have an enormous impact on your health. Oh, that's such a great summary. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for Yogacharya O'Brien. We've been discussing good sense, good science, and good practices for health and well-being with special guest Diana Lurie, Ph.D., Professor of Neuropharmacology at the University of Montana, as well as an Ayurvedic practitioner and editor-in-chief of the Ayurveda Journal of Health. And her website, once again, is through the University of Montana. So it's health.umt.edu slash uh, biomed slash people. 
And once again, Diana Lurie, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed our conversation. My pleasure. Me too. So uh, please join us next week for the Yoga Sutra and You, a look at what Patanjali offers us today. Edwin Bryant, Ph.D., professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University and author of a new translation and commentary on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, joins Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien for a conversation about the sutra's relevance in today's world. Tune in to discover how this classic text can help you on your quest to meditate more skillfully and live a spiritually conscious life. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization, a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. For more information, visit the website csecenter.org. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast at iTunes. I look forward to being with you again when Yogacharya O'Brien is away. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all that you meet. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Join us every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific for practical, purposeful methods for spiritually conscious living every day. The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by friends and members of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California a ministry in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization. www.csecenter.org Request free literature by writing info at csecenter.org The base of all life is the infinite wellspring of Source, and each of us has a unique way of expressing that Source as an individualized soul. Do you enjoy the company of inspiring people who are living on purpose? Do you want to live joyfully attuned to your own unique soul expression? Host Rev. Kristen Powell welcomes you to join the gathering of souls who live this way. You'll meet artists, naturalists, and other soulful expressions that will inspire you to call forth the most alive, passionate version of yourself. Get into the natural stream of your own soul by tuning into Soul Stream live every Wednesday at noon Central Time on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Inspiration only takes a moment. We invite you to focus your attention inward with these words from Elizabeth Searle Lamb. This is a new day. Lead your conscious mind to that still haven of your soul where your indwelling Christ opens wide the doorway of your heart. At once, mind, soul, and body, you are flooded with the light and love of God. You are lifted high above this earthly plane and filled with the radiance of spirit. Send this love and light on to those whom you hold dear so that it may uplift, heal, and comfort them. As you send this radiance on, you are filled with a new sense of God's power, and you release this power to the whole world to uplift, guide, and bless all people. A day's tasks await you. But God is with you, and with God's help, all shall be done perfectly. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Do you 
experience the peace and joy promised by A Course in Miracles? Or are you still struggling to truly live your beliefs from moment to moment? Let Rev. Jennifer Hadley help you focus on your intent to be the love, be the peace, through practical application by walking your talk. Experience the healing live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central on A Course in Miracles, Living the Love, Walking the Talk, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. At the base of all life is the infinite wellspring of Source, And each of us has a unique way of expressing that source as an individualized soul. Do you enjoy the company of inspiring people who are living on purpose? Do you want to live joyfully attuned to your own unique soul expression? Host Rev. Kristen Powell welcomes you to join the gathering of souls who live this way. You'll meet artists, naturalists, and other soulful expressions that will inspire you to call forth the most alive, passionate version of yourself. Get into the natural stream of your own soul by tuning into Soul Stream live every Wednesday at noon Central Time on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity. The newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. 